0: I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, chapter 12. The 1968 Olympics were held in Mexico City. The most memorable event of those Olympic Games for some was Bob Beeman setting a long junk record that many thought would never be broken. It eventually was. For others, the most memorable event was a young boxer named George Foreman. Winning a gold medal and parading around the ring with an American flag, fanning patriotism and pride. But the athlete that made the longest-lasting impression on people was named John Stephen Aquari. On October 20th, at 7 pm, an hour after Mamo Wold of, Ethiopian, Ethiopia had crossed the finish line as the winner of the 26.2-mile marathon. And after all the other runners had finished and the medal ceremony had ended and most of the stands had emptied in the Mexico City Olympic Stadium, a lone figure entered the south end and slowly limped around the track. It was John Stephen Akwari, wearing the colors of Tanzania. He had taken a severe and literally been trampled by several other runners. His knee was out of place and his leg was badly cut. Bloodied and bandaged, he grimaced with each step as he hobbled around the 400-meter track and crossed the finish line to the encouragement and the cheers of the few fans who remained. In view of his injury and having no chance of winning a medal, Someone asked him why he had not quit. And here was his answer. My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Can I make a simple application? I want each one of us today to be saying... Jesus didn't die for me on the cross of Calvary so that I could start the race. He died for me so that I would finish it. In the Christian life, finishing well means everything. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Timothy while sitting in a jail cell awaiting his execution. On the last page of that letter, which we call chapter 4, of 2 Timothy, he wrote this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, Paul is contemplating his impending death and he's looking back over his life and his ministry and he's evaluating it. And what I really find telling is what he points to. He doesn't point back and say, I won. You know, for us... Winning is everything. And not only do we want to win, we want to set records and we want to have monuments built to us and we feel like if that doesn't happen, that we're a failure. But the Apostle Paul, who is arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, pointed back on his life to one measurable commodity and that was endurance. He said, I fought, I kept, I finished. And that's really the theme and the focus of our passage this morning. It begins in verse 12 with the word, therefore. He's looking back on what He already said. He told us in verse 1 that we're to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then He told us in verses 2 and 3, we're to look to our greatest example, Jesus, who in verse 2 endured the cross who in verse 3 endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. And then He expressed to them His concern that some of the readers were about to drop out of the race because they were fainting under God's discipline. And so He says in verse 3, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. And then He says in verse 5, don't faint. And now He says, therefore. And He's going to exhort them and us to endure the Christian marathon, to stay in the race until the end in spite of weariness, in spite of scrapes, in spite of falls, in spite of injuries. He's exhorting us to finish strong. And in verses 12-14, to He gives us four exhortations or four encouragements. I've listed them in your bulletin and we're going to walk through them this morning. The first one is perseverance. Look at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. He's still got the analogy of the race in mind. Somebody who runs marathons told me recently that when they're not running in the marathon, they like to get at one of the stations along the marathon where you hand out water. Not just so that they can give them a drink, but so that they can shout encouraging words to the runners as they go along. And that's where I see the writer here. He's putting himself along the track and he's shouting encouragement to us as as we run. And this first encouragement is, get your second wind. Don't give up. Don't quit. Press on. Persevere. There is no reason for a Christian to ever get worn out. There is no excuse for a Christian ever to collapse in the race. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. If you're a believer, you have spiritually found the fountain of youth. Even though your outer man is decaying, your inner man every day is being renewed. Isaiah 40 verse 30 says, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's a promise of God to us. These Jewish readers were in the midst of persecution and they were running out of gas. They were slowing down in the race. Rather than being trained by the difficult situations. they were being weighed down by those things. Rather than jumping over the hurdles, they were crashing into them. And he tells us in chapter 10 and verse 25 that attendance was down. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. Some weren't coming anymore and they were looking back toward Judaism and so they needed this exhortation. Now, runners learn to use their arms. A good runner's arms work in rhythm with the rest of his body. When my son Ryan was running track at Seamote, in the off-season, they put him in the weight room and I asked him, well, what what are you doing in the weight room? I mean, are, are you just working on your leg muscles? And he said, no, they've got me building up my arms. I said, well, why would they have you build up your arms? And he said, well, because the stronger your upper body... The faster you run. You see, strength in your arms gives you that extra drive and it gives you that extra balance as you run the race. And one of the first signs that a runner is getting tired is that his arms begin to drop. And the second sign that a runner is tired is that his knees begin to wobble. Have you ever been there? Takes me about a quarter of the way around the track. You know, you're talking to your legs, but they're not, they're not really responding. They're kind of like jello, and they, they got their own thing going. When well, my daughter Lindsay Joe recently ran the half marathon in St. Louis, she said, Dad, the last mile and a half, I couldn't feel my legs. Well, he's writing to these readers, and he's writing to those of us whose arms are drooping and whose knees are wobbling, and He's exhorting us to lift them up, to strengthen them. Now, how do we do that? Well, that, we could have a long answer to that question, but I want to point out three things that I see right in our passage that are answers to how we go about doing that. Number one, keep your focus. The writer gets this exhortation in verse 12 from the Old Testament Scriptures. And it comes from Isaiah 35, 3, where we read the same thing. Lift up the slack hands and strengthen the feeble knees. But if you'll read that chapter that it comes out of, He gives a because in that context. He says, lift up the slack hands and strengthen the feeble knees because God is coming to set up His kingdom and the desert is going to blossom and rejoice with joy. When you're running out of gas in the race, it doesn't help to look at your wobbly knees. You have to focus on the goal line. And in the Christian life, the goal line is the return of Jesus Christ. He told us in verse 2, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to run with the anticipation that He might come back today. That's the same encouragement He gave. If you just turn back a few pages to chapter 10 of Hebrews in verse 36... He says, For you have need of what endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then notice verse 37. For yet, in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. You need encouragement and as you're running, it's important that you focus on the One who's coming back. So how do you lift your hands? How do you strengthen wobbling knees? You keep your focus on on the Lord Jesus in His return. Secondly, run through the pain. I've never run in a marathon, but I can imagine that in a marathon you have to deal with physical hindrances. You also have to deal with mental hindrances. Physically, if you're in a marathon, you may turn your ankle. You may and probably will develop blisters. You may experience joint pain. And that's all compounding the mental struggles of the fatigue and the discouragement that you have to keep yourself going. Verse 12 indicates that weariness and injuries are inevitable in the Christian race. Verse 12 tells me that it's not going to be easy to finish the course. And so the question is, will you drop out when the hardships come? Or will you deal with the problems and keep running? Will you, like... John Stephen Aquari persevere through injuries and press on even when you're limping and hurting and blood is running down your leg and your tongue is hanging out. Now, the beauty of the Christian race is that you are not limited to your own resources. The beauty of the Christian race is that you don't run in your own strength. Paul said this about you in Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you would just start. And then He left. He is with you, completing what He started all the way through. Paul describes where we get our second wind from in Colossians 1.29. He says, I labor, striving, according to His power which mightily works within me. I love that verse. He says, I'm striving. I'm pressing on. I'm running through the pain with God's power mightily working in me. So when do I say I can't? Never. Because I'm not running in my strength. I'm running in His power. Lindsay uh, had a softball tournament last weekend in St. Louis and I wasn't able to go because of a wedding obligation but she was in the tournament and she dove for a ball and, and uh, she had a bunch of scabs already on her knee but she, she knocked all the scabs off her knee and, and uh, bloodied her knee. Well, today they won't let you bleed on the field like the good old days. <laughs> so, fearing that the umpire would see the blood and take her out of the game she reached down and grabbed some dirt and rubbed some dirt on her knee. Now, as a father, I was rather, rather proud of her. In fact, theologically, I find that to be sound medical advice. I mean, we we were made out of dust, so why not replace... What she found out was that in softball, unlike basketball and other sports, they don't make you leave the game and the game goes on. They stop the game and uh, bandaged her knee and wrapped her knee and and she went on. But I was thinking about that attitude. You know, we need that same attitude in the Christian race. If I fall down, which you're going to do, if you get a bloody knee or a sprained ankle, do you have the attitude that says, I'm just going to rub some dirt in it? and go on. That's what He's calling us to here. And then the third way that we lift up arms and strengthen wobbly knees is to help each other. If you notice the wording in verse 12, He doesn't say, strengthen your own weak hands and knees, although there are times when we must do that. He says, strengthen the hands and the knees that are weak. Which means, whether they're yours or somebody else's. There are times when we have to come alongside our brother and bandage his cut leg or wrap his sprained ankle and put our arm around his shoulder and run alongside him and support him. See, most marathon runners run for themselves. They're they're not a team, but that's not the way it works in the Christian race. We aren't running this race alone. We are not competing against each other. We're on the same team. I'm reminded of the time in Exodus 17 when Joshua fought against the Amalekites and Moses, the leader, was up on the hill above the battlefield. And when Moses' hands were up, Israel was winning. When Moses' hands drooped down, Israel began to lose. And Moses' hands got heavy and became weak and they dropped down to his side. And there was a guy named Hur up on the hill who along with Aaron, Moses' brother, got a stone for Moses to sit on and crawled up underneath the prophet's armpit and supported him. Now we're talking about a hot day in a long battle with no antiperspirant and battlefields are sweaty places. Her could have run back down the hill and told the children of Israel, Moses stink. He could have run back down the hill and told everybody that their leader was failing to do his job. Because he was. But what did he do? He saw Moses in his struggles and his weakness and he got underneath him and supported His weak arms. Let me ask you a question. Who are you doing that for right now in the Christian race? Number one exhortation, persevere. Second exhortation is persistence in verse 13. Now, I couldn't find a better P word and I have to have four P's. So, let me explain to you the difference between these two words in my mind. Perseverance is the idea of continuing despite the obstacles and the opposition. Persistence is more the idea of continuing through the mundane and the repetitious. So, persevering is overcoming the obstacles. Persistence is continuing in the same pattern, even though sometimes it's rather mundane. Now, running involves doing the same thing over and over and staying on the same course or the same track or the same lane throughout the entire race. That involves persistence. And look what he says in verse 13. And make straight has for your feet. Now this is a phrase that also comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a quote in Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, where he says, Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Here's our phrase, watch the path of your feet, keep them straight, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. What's he saying? He's saying, stay in your lane. In the Christian race, don't wander all over the course. Keep persistently putting one foot in front of the other. Keep your eyes on the goal and go straight for it, and don't deviate. That's why Paul said, I have fought the good fight, not I have fought a fight. Paul says, I have finished the course, not a course. He says, I have kept the faith, not a faith. That's why in verse 1 it's called the race that is set before us. You see, you don't make it up as you go along. You follow God's course for you. You have to keep straight lines. You have to stay in the lane that God has designed for you. You have to stay on the path. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, he tells you. Look at verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, how do we apply this? Well, I see three applications. Number one, he could be referring to you personally. If so, what he's saying is, if you're already limping and hurting, the last place you want to go is off the track. Because if you go off the track, you're going to go from sore to sprained. You're going to go from limping to lying down. You're going to go from hobbling to disabled. If if you're already hurting, you need to stay on the level track that God has for you and not get off the path where you're going to get hurt. But there's a second way to apply this, and that is I think he could be referring to other Christians because literally verse 13 reads, and make straight paths for your feet so that that which is lame may not be put out of joint. I may not be talking about your personal leg. He may be talking about your Christian brother or sister who's limping and struggling. You see, if you as a Christian are weaving all over the track, you're going to be knocking down some weaker, limping Christians and hindering them in the race. And that's why the Bible, I think, uses the same analogy when it talks about stumbling your weaker brother. How do you stumble your weaker brother? You're weaving all over the track and getting in his lane and tripping him up. But I think there's a third application. And that is, he could be referring to Unbelievers. You see, we've seen that this church is a church that's made up of believers and un- unbelievers. There were those who had left Judaism, but they hadn't really made a commitment of faith to Jesus Christ. They were professors, but not possessors. And it's interesting to me that this same Greek word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in 1 Kings eighteen twenty-one, when Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel and he says... How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And literally, the Septuagint reads, How long will you limp between two opinions? He's talking about the person who's trying to keep one foot on Baal and one foot on God. And he's saying you're limping because you're trying to go two routes. And when are you going to make up your mind and either go with Baal or go with God? You can't stay in between. You're limping between two opinions. Well, I think there are many people in that boat. They are looking at Christianity. They're sort of interested in Christianity, but they don't want to let go of their commitment to the world. And so they're in between and they're limping. And what he's saying here is, those guys are watching you. And if you don't start running a straight course, they're going to chuck the whole thing. They're going to say, I've watched these Christians and if that's all there is, then I don't want it. The biggest stumbling block in Christianity is Christians. I was at a, one of Lindsay's ball games recently and one of the parents who has kind of a foul mouth was sitting by me. He knows I'm a preacher, but I think he's a little tamer by me, but he's not tame by any means. Uh, But he turned to me and he said, uh, Are you Baptist? I said, No. I don't think it would have mattered because he was going to tell a joke. So he said, uh, If you go fishing, how many Baptists should you take? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, you have to take two because if you take one, they'll drink all your beer. I'm not finished. (laughs) I'm not telling that joke to say anything against Baptists, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you this guy's perspective because what he did right afterwards was turn to the guy on the other side and started talking about all the Baptists that he knew that did that. Put Christian in there. Whatever your commitment is. You make a commitment. You're one way around when there's another Christian around, but when you're by yourself with unbelievers, they're watching you as well. And they're seeing that you're not being consistent with your convictions when you're alone the same way you are when you're with another Christian. The world is watching and they're saying, hey, I saw that. If that's all there is, Christianity, then I don't want it. So you should be making a straight course so that they can follow you to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're wobbling around and your arms are hanging down and you're discouraged and you're questioning God and you're mad at God because of your troubles, someone is going to make that a convenient excuse to throw out Christianity. And God doesn't want that. What does God want? The end of verse 13 says, But let it rather be healed. God doesn't want that lame one to be permanently disabled. He wants that lame one to permanently be healed. And the key to that is the beginning of verse 13 make straight paths for your feet. That's a Greek phrase that means literally wheel tracks. The idea is that you're leaving tracks for others to follow in. Make sure you stay on course because if you go off course, there are others who are going to follow your tracks and they're going to be disqualified. They're going to be disabled. I guess the reason I never took up running is that running can be mundane. It's the same motion using the same muscles over and over again. It's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. The Christian life is a race. And to be honest with you, there are times when the Christian life can be mundane. Some days there are no giants to kill. Some days there are no fortresses to conquer. Some days we're just putting one foot in front of the other and staying on the path. I get up every morning and read the same Word. I say the same kind of prayers. I obey the same truth. I follow the same Lord. And that requires persistence. Third exhortation is peace. Verse 14, Pursue peace with all men. Now, all men is comprehensive. It includes everybody. All those within the church, but also all those outside the church, even those who are persecuting you. As Jesus said in Luke 6 27 and 28 Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, those are not easy words to obey. This is not an easy part of the path to stay on. It applies to those of you who have a spouse who is disobedient to the Word. It applies to those of you who have parents that are antagonistic to the Gospel. It applies to those of you who have a work environment that is hostile to your faith. But perhaps the most difficult place to apply these words is toward fellow Christians who wrong you. You see, we expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. So, when an unbeliever tries to knock us off the path, we're sort of anticipating that, but we don't expect it from fellow Christians. When a fellow Christian is running beside you and he gives you an elbow to the throat, kind of shocking. We don't expect them to weave out of their lane and trip us up. We don't expect them to be dropping banana peels in front of us in our lane. What do we do when that happens? Well, rather than dropping out of the race, rather than screaming for an official, he tells us we are to pursue peace. That word pursue is a strong word. It means to go after peace with the intensity that a hunter tracks down his prey. It implies concentrated effort. It tells me that peace will not happen accidentally. Now when someone hurts you, your natural tendency is to withdraw and lick your wounds. Your natural tendency is to put up a wall of protection around yourself so that that won't happen again. Your natural tendency is to distance yourself from that person who hurt you. I will just avoid that person. But God says you are to pursue peace with that person. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament where we're told to do this. In Romans 14, 19, Paul says, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. First Peter three eleven says that the one who wants to love life and see good days should seek peace and pursue it. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, now flee from youthful lusts. Most of us stop right there. We get the negative part of that verse. But it's a two-sided verse. It has a positive side. It says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let me tell you something that I hope is not a surprise to you. You cannot run this lifelong Christian race without encountering some conflicts. So in order to finish strong, you have to pursue peace. When you're injured by another runner, do you withdraw and nurse your hurt feelings? Or do you intensely hunt down peace? Do you come to that person with an attitude of humility, and I underline that, attitude of humility. Because you don't come to the person saying, I was right and you were a complete jerk. That doesn't work. I've tried it. You see, a lot of us, when we have conflict, football season starts today, doesn't it? Uh, a lot of us, when we have conflicts, we, we want an instant replay. You know, bring in the officials. Let's look at it from all the angles. Let's see what happened. We don't have instant replay. What we have is instant memory. And you've had this dialogue. You go, well, you said this. No, I didn't say that. You said that. No, I didn't say that. You said that. And anyway, your tone was such that that's what you meant. No, I didn't have that kind of tone. We've had those kind of debates. And you wish you had the instant replay. You could replay the whole thing and see what really happened, and then we can really get justice. But the reality is all we have is instant memory. And the result of instant memory is we have all these memory angles and when we replay the whole thing, the result is that the referee comes out and says it was inconclusive to overturn the ruling on the field. And I'll tell you what the ruling on the field is. The ruling on the field is that both parties are probably at fault to some degree. So peace is pursued with a simple, genuine, humble I'm sorry. Followed by a, hey, you're not my enemy. we got another enemy to worry about. We shouldn't be fighting with each other. We're not competing with each other. We're on the same team. So let's pick each other up and run together. The third exhortation to finish you strong is pursue peace. Fourth exhortation is purity. Notice verse 14 again. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification. So what he's saying is pursue peace and pursue sanctification. Now, that sanctification is a long word that just means holiness. It means to be set apart. Now, let me add a footnote right here before I go on. The link between pursuing peace and pursuing sanctification shows that we must not pursue peace at any cost. I think that's why Paul told us in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, the reality is that in this fallen world, sometimes it's not possible to be at peace with everyone. Sometimes that other person is going to cling to bitterness and hatred and you can't do anything more than you've already done to be reconciled. But at other times, to make peace would require compromising obedience to God. Whether that involves moral obedience or doctrinal obedience. And I think what what we're learning here is as we back up to the concept of peace, you can't sacrifice personal holiness for the sake of peace. Now, what kind of holiness is He talking about in verse 14. Well, it can't be the kind spoken about in Romans 4 or 5 where he says that Christ's righteousness is put to my account because I don't pursue that positional righteousness. I already have it. And I don't get it by pursuing it. I get it by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think it's obvious to me as he's talking to us as Christians about pursuing righteousness. He's talking about practical Righteousness. But as I say that, that raises another question, and that is, what does it mean at the end of verse 14? Because verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what's that mean? Well, it seems pretty clear to me that he's saying if a person doesn't have this sanctification, they're not going to go to heaven. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, let me clarify that. Let me clarify that with a couple things. Number one, it doesn't mean that we earn salvation by our righteous behavior. Because the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that salvation is God's free gift to all who trust in Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about earning our salvation. Let me clarify it another way. It doesn't mean that anyone can be perfectly holy or sanctified in this life. There are those who teach that believers can achieve a state of sinless perfection or total sanctification in this life. This verse is not teaching that. The Bible is clear that that is not going to happen this side of heaven. In fact, if you just go back in our chapter to verse 4, he tells us there, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In the Christian life, striving against sin is an ongoing process, and it's only going to end when they martyr you, when you shed blood and you die. Before that, you're not going to stop, you're not going to arrive. You're not going to stop striving against sin. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, John is saying, if you say I have arrived. I am sinless. You're lying. So, John is saying if you say you're sinless, you just sinned. So, nobody's going to get there to total sanctification, to sinless perfection in this lifetime. You say, well, all right, what does this mean then? Well, it seems clear to me in the context that this is what it means. He tells us in verse 10. That holiness is the product of God's discipline. The end of verse 10 says, He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. So the product of holiness, the the product of discipline is holiness. And then He tells us in verse 6 that every child of God gets disciplined. So if every child of God gets disciplined, and the product of discipline is holiness, then he's simply jumping to the conclusion and saying, therefore, every child of God gets this holiness. It's got to be happening in your life if you're really God's child. You see, he told us in verse 8, if I don't have discipline, I'm not the child of God. So he's simply telling us in verse 14 that if I don't have the product of discipline, I'm obviously not God's child either. See, if God's not spanking me somewhere along the line, then I'm not His child. And if I don't have the product of that spanking, which is change in my behavior, then I'm not God's child either. You know, people can tell that I'm Hal Green's son because I look like him and I act like him. And if you're God's child, you ought to look like him and you ought to act like him. That's all He's saying. It's not going to be fully developed in this lifetime, but there ought to be evidence because it's called us sharing God's holiness. It's us becoming like Him. You will avoid what He hates, sin, and you will pursue what He loves, righteousness. So the four exhortations to finish strong. Number one, perseverance. Run through the pain. Number two, persistence. Be consistent day in and day out, even when it gets mundane. Number three, peace. God's marathon is a team sport. And number four, purity. Pursue the character of your Heavenly Father. Florence Chadwick was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. On July 4, 1952, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. The challenge was not only the distance, but the bone-chilling water. And then to complicate matters, on the day that she swam, there was a dense fog that lay over the entire area, making it impossible to see the land. After about 15 hours in the water, She gave up. Got into the boat that was going alongside her. The reality was that she was within a half mile of her goal. She would later tell a reporter, I'm not making excuses, but I really believe that if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. In the Christian race, lift up the weak hands, strengthen the feeble knees... And run a straight line and keep your eyes on the goal. And like John Stephen Aquari, even if you're bloodied and limping, finish strong. I'm going to have the praise team come back.